When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. On the Record with White House Correspondent April Ryan. I'm April Ryan with On the Record. My guest is none other than this woman, author of Tough Love, former National Security Advisor and uh, former U.S. Ambassador Susan Rice. If you just watched the President's briefing, we are going to talk about that. We're going to talk about her most recent op-eds. This is basically primarily all about uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus. Yeah, well, I, I, I had to stop watching. And frankly, I, I've had to stop watching uh, now for a while. If only, if I weren't coming to talk to you, I wouldn't have listened to it at all. But to be honest, April, that wasn't a briefing. That was a North Korean-style propaganda show. And, you know, him playing this ridiculous campaign video, cutting off reporters, telling lies left, right, and center, that is exactly not what we need in this crisis. We are aching for responsible, sober, fact-based, empathetic leadership out of the White House. And every day we get just the opposite. It's, it's almost as if with all the pain we're going through, he gets some perverse satisfaction out of rubbing salt in our national wounds. So you, you said North Korean style propaganda. That's, that's a strong statement. Why was it propaganda and what lies did he tell? I mean, I, don't, I, can't, I, didn't, I can't give you chapter and verse. I'll give you a few examples. But why was it North Korean style propaganda? I don't think, well, first of all, let's roll this back, April. You've been a White House correspondent how many years? 23. 23 years. Have you ever seen a president of the United States stand up there and, and roll a video full of lies that could have been tailored taxpayer to a campaign taxpayer commercial? Dollars. Yes, taxpayer dollars from Fox News, basically a campaign video. Have um, you ever seen anything like that before? Um, not from a president. I've seen a press secretary do it about a, a reporter, Jim Acosta, at a press briefing. I've seen that. This is but you've never comment. seen the president of the United no, States never, stand up never. in the White House briefing room and pull never. that trick. Okay, never. nor have I. Okay. So that's why I say it was a North Korean-style propaganda uh, session. It was an embarrassment, and it was full of lies and misrepresentations. I mean, the, the lies are, are myriad, but, you know, for example, this one he keeps repeating about how the Obama administration left the so-called cupboards bare at the national stockpile. That is made up out of whole cloth. There is absolutely no truth to that. We left, and... Plenty of fact checkers and journalists, including those who visited the stockpile, have validated that it was full. So that's lie number one. But we've heard it so many times. I think it is uh, worthy of being debunked again today. He said 
you know, we had left them with a, a broken testing capacity for coronavirus. Well, as you and I know, you can't test for a virus in 2016 that doesn't arise until 2019, and or you know, or in this uh, country until 2020. So the novel coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, did not exist when President Barack Obama was in the White House. That's why it's called the novel coronavirus, <laughs> meaning new. It was, it's new, and that's why it's called COVID nineteen because it came in twenty nineteen. So no, but I mean, I, I really, I don't have the, the the patience or the stomach, April, to go through every single lie he's told. But they're myriad, and. Uh, and I think people have, are coming to see that quite clearly. Once again, we have, uh, we, I'm, I'm honored, and we are honored to have um, Ambassador Susan Rice with her new book. You see, I'm plugging your book. I love this. Tough Love, Ambassador Thank Susan. you. You're welcome. You're my friend. I, got you. I expect you to do the same for me. I've and got look, I see how you flagged it with all your, uh, I, you know, I, do, I told all you. All the pages you, you marked. That's anyway, great. Anyway, you know, I read, look, I read. So um, contrary to what some people think. So anyway, <laughs> I know, moving on. So um, I talked to one of your colleagues. This is such a serious time. And before I get into this question, I want everyone to throw your, your questions at us. If I see them, I'm going to ask. Uh, Ambassador Rice is here for this hour to take our questions and to tell us what's really going on. Tell your friends, this is not something you see on TV. This affects us. This is life and death. This is a moment in history we've never seen before. And what moves forward hinges upon this moment. So please tell your friends to tune in. Um, now, Ambassador Rice, um, I talked to one of your colleagues uh, a few weeks ago, um, former National Homeland Security head Jay Johnson. And I asked him point blank, is this a national security crisis. He said yes, and he went on to explain why. Do you feel that this is a national security crisis? Absolutely. I mean, what is national security, if not the health and safety of the American people? It's often said, and correctly so, that the President of the United States' most important and sacred responsibility is to keep the American people safe from anything that can cause us grave harm. You know, nuclear weapons can cause grave harm. Terrorism can cause grave harm. But as I wrote in my book, Tough Love, long before we had this pandemic, this was exactly the sort of thing that as national security advisor kept me up at night because we've known for decades that a pandemic of this sort that would sweep the globe that we haven't seen in such wide scale since 1918, we were overdue for. We knew this to be precisely the kind of threat that could come from inside or outside the country and kill many thousands of Americans, if not millions. And so we planned for it as a national security threat. We understood it to be a national security threat. It absolutely is, which is why, April, when I was national security advisor for President Obama in his second term, I set up an office at the White House in the National Security Council, which I ran, called the Global Health Security and Biodefense Office. Mm -hmm. Its sole purpose was to scan the world and monitor the outbreak of potential man-made and natural occurring threats like mm -hmm. the coronavirus that had the potential to do grave harm to the United States. 
And their job was to monitor and prepare and warn and lead the response operation at the, at the White House. And that office, which I established, unfortunately, was dismantled in 2018 by President Trump and his then National Security Advisor, John Bolton. It's why, April, because we precisely because we understood it to be a national security threat, that during the transition, in the 12 hours that I had over four sessions to brief my successor, General Michael Flynn, I raised and emphasized among many issues of importance the threat of pandemic disease. It was among- Say this again, say this again. You and the Obama administration during the transition for the new government talked to then National Security Advisor. National Security Advisor designated. Designate, I yes. the National Security right. Advisor. Yeah, he, he was in Congress. Yes, he was on his way to be the National Security Advisor. You talked to him for in four sessions for 12 hours. Yes. And in, in the course of those discussions, I was raising with him all kinds of uh, national security challenges of importance, including the threat of pandemic disease. We did actually a special briefing with others, uh, including Lisa Monaco, the Homeland Security uh, and Counterterrorism Advisor, and many others about the pandemic threat. And we wrote over 100 briefing papers for the incoming team. Included among them were important papers about the threat of pandemic disease. April, also during the transition, we had a live in-person cabinet level exercise when all the cabinet level officials from the Obama administration sat down for three hours and met with the incoming cabinet level officials from the Trump administration. This was a, an exercise that was mandated by law because for the most part, the Trump administration, except for the contact I had with General Flynn, really didn't want to engage the outgoing Obama administration. But this exercise we had in, in about a week before that the inauguration in January 2017 uh, was required and it made us each sit next to our counterparts outgoing and, and incoming. We ran three scenarios uh, in that exercise. One on a terrorism threat, one on a cybersecurity threat, and one on the pandemic threat because we anticipated that this could be something that arose in the, in the future, and we wanted them to be aware of it and prepared. And at the same time, April, the Obama administration handed to the Trump administration a 69-page playbook. It was like pandemic for dummies, a handbook for here's what you do if this arises. Here are the questions to ask. Here are the things to check. Here are the steps to take. Uh, and, you know, if they even you know, looked at it once, I think they probably put it on some shelf, if not in the trash can. So we understood in the Obama administration, and actually, in, in all fairness, so did the Bush administration before us understand, because they had experienced H5N1, a very deadly flu. We had experienced H1N1 in 2009, another flu uh, pandemic. We'd experienced Ebola, and the Zika virus, we knew about the seriousness of pandemic threats. And we tried to impart that uh, sense of urgency and concern to our successors. So at, the, so at the end of the day, after you had this conversation with your counterpart who was a designate, 
for the incoming administration at the time. What did Michael Flynn say to you about the issue of a pandemic, the potential of a pandemic, pandemic that you were due for one? Not much, if anything. I mean, I think of, of the issues he was focused on, and this was not high on his radar screen. He, he didn't, I don't recall him saying anything particularly insightful or, or uh, seize on it in any way, but I also don't remember him being dismissive of it. He was much more interested in, in things like China and Turkey uh, and other issues uh, that we obviously had to discuss as well. So at the end of the day, you said he dismantled this one office. Are there other offices that handle uh, a pandemic that have either been dismantled or defunded or have been rolled back with funding? And also, do you know if there is indeed a crisis management office handling this pandemic, this national security crisis at this moment? Well, first of all, I was describing what we set up to be the infrastructure in the White House. Yes, of course, in other parts of the federal government, at the Centers for Disease Control, <clears throat> at the Health and Human Services Department, including at NIH and at NIAID, where Anthony Fauci is the director, the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Yes, of course, in USAID and state, uh, the State Department, there certainly are offices that have responsibility for uh, pandemic disease. But the point of making it a focal point in the White House, an office that reports directly to the National Security Advisor and to the Homeland Security Advisor and through them to the president, is to elevate the importance of it, attach additional focus and resources to it, and enable the White House to do what it is meant to do at the National Security Council, which is to coordinate and convene these other agencies. And April, to your point about funding, in the president's budgets over successive years, he has proposed significant cuts to CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, to NIH, uh, including this budget cycle, a budget he submitted to Congress in February after we knew about the pandemic, and to certain parts of the Health and Human Services Department. So yeah, there have been, there've been budget cuts, uh, but the, the principal point is that this administration at the White House level, at the White House level, was never particularly interested in or focused on the concerns about pandemics. I think clearly the Centers for Disease Control, HHS, even the Council of Economic Advisors, which is a, a part of the extended White House, ran exercises and had studies done on the impacts of pandemics. But it never seemed to gain the kind of traction that would have been helpful in retrospect uh, had, that, had this White House early on uh, been seized with the, the urgency and the importance of pandemics. So following up on what you're saying, the preparedness um, of this administration to handle this national security crisis, you wrote an op-ed that I printed out. Um, you've, you've written several op-eds in the last uh, couple of weeks and months. And this one from the New York Times uh, dated April 7th, 2020, by Susan E. Rice. It says, Trump is the wartime president we have, not the one we need. And let me see the fourth graph down. You go in the first line. The Trump administration shelved the war plan. Uh, you talk about military preparedness. He is not prepared. 
Why is he not prepared? Even though he did all of these cuts, even though they may have shelved your pandemic information, could they have done this on their own? And maybe they're doing what they saw fit at this moment compared to what had happened in the past? Well, yes, April, they could have done this much better, much differently. Uh, and we would be much better off in terms of lives lost and the economic consequences. Let me walk you through what we know to be the timeline. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go all the way back, but let's start in early January, where the director of the Centers for Disease Control, I think it was January 3rd or thereabouts, received a phone call from his counterpart in China warning him uh, of a novel coronavirus in the Wuhan area. Uh, the head of the CDC, according to press reports, was so alarmed that he tried to reach out to the White House and to the Secretary of Health and Human Services to alert them to this. It sounds like from the press reporting that has uh, been done of late that the National Security Council, my old uh, institution that I used to lead, was alerted at the working level to this uh, incoming threat potentially in maybe as early as mid-January. What should have happened at that point in early to mid-January over two and a half months ago is that the White House should have swung into high gear. Mm -hmm. The White House National Security Advisor or whoever senior that the president designated at the White House should have immediately convened at the highest levels, not the working level, but at the highest level, the cabinet level. Those officials with all the elements of responsibility for this threat. What they then should have done is as soon as they got the sequence of the virus, the genetic sequence of the virus, which they had by mid-January from China to the WHO, the World Health Organization, mm -hmm to begin at that stage to make testing kits as quickly and effectively as possible. Now, we've seen a lot of uh, you know, reporting on the testing failure, and there are many aspects to it. But to make it simple, the United States, the richest and most capable country on Earth, ought to have had the capacity to create tests that work and get them out to the states as quickly as possible. There are all kinds of reasons why apparently that process failed. They relied on the CDC. The CDC didn't go quickly enough to academic institutions. There was a flaw in the CDC test. They didn't go quickly enough to the private sector. They didn't take uh, advantage of the capacity of other countries in the World Health Organization, which they could have done had they been willing to do so. But, so the first thing you got to do is you got to get the testing together and you've got to make it widely available and you got to be able to get the results back quickly. That failure was sort of the original sin of the whole failed response. And we still to this day, as many Americans know, don't have the testing capacity that we need for all of those who feel they are sick and need a test, much less for what Trump is talking about, reopening the country. So testing is number one. Mm -hmm. The next thing, April, that should have been done very early on in January is to say, before there was a case in the United States, before there were any deaths in the United States, this looks like it has the potential to be the global pandemic we have been worried about 
and frankly waiting for. And that means we have to go to our contingency plans. And we know everybody who works in public health, everybody who works in national security knows that on any normal day in this country, pre-pandemic, that our healthcare system is not structured to deal with the magnitude of demand that we're gonna have in a pandemic. We don't have the beds. We don't have the PPE, the masks, the gloves, you know, personal protective gowns, equipment. the personal First protective protection. equipment. We don't have the ventilators. Mm -hmm. We don't have the personnel. So all of those things have to be sourced on a surge basis. We do have stockpiles in the federal government and the states, but we're gonna have to procure in a hell of a hurry a lot more. And we know that that's the case, but that's not what happened. That's what should have started in January. It didn't happen April until March that we really put the pedal to the metal to try to get the personal protective equipment, the ventilators, uh, and all of that. Towards the end of March. Towards well, the end of March. And, it, and, and it's still not altogether adequate. In the meantime, we shared some of our stockpile, millions and millions of that with China which is frankly not something I'm going to fault because we all have to help each other. Now we're sourcing from China. So before um, you start, but, what is in the stockpile? Because people are asking, I've been seeing questions. What is the stockpile? What does it consist of? What is it? Please explain. Well, the, the national stockpile, this is a medical stockpile, is meant to contain medicines that we, we need in bulk. It's meant to contain certain vaccines that exist for things that we uh, need, may need in bulk. It's meant to contain ventilators. It's meant to pertain, uh, contain personal protective equipment. The things that you would need in a medical emergency. And that medical emergency could be, you know, a chemical weapons attack, mm. or it could be a pandemic. And we maintain that stockpile for all these sorts of contingencies. So um, they would then, in normal times, had we had that warning, as we did in early January, we would have surged the sourcing of all of this equipment. Instead, we were still exporting it for, for profit. We were not acting like, you know, in weeks, this was going to be a massive problem in the United States of America. And that lack of preparedness, that refusal by the White House to invoke the authorities that it actually has, the president has the authority under the Defense Production Act to order companies to produce whatever is needed in a crisis in certain quantities. And more importantly, it gives the president the authority to distribute those emergency supplies uh, where they are needed most, not on a random basis, not pitting the states one against each other to compete for the same equipment at jacked up prices and compete against the federal government. The president has allowed the, the, the law of the jungle to prevail and chaos and competition, which is setting back our efforts. So those are just among the early steps we should have taken, shutting down the country uh, on a nationwide basis and doing it sooner in the game would also have made a major difference as has been widely reported. So Ambassador Rice, when you say the law of the jungle is prevailing, um, who does that hurt? Because the states are vying for things. All of us. Right. It, it hurts the people. Yes, okay. you and me and everybody we love and everybody we know and everybody we don't know. So I, and just to be clear, I talked to the governor of Michigan. I did an exclusive interview with the governor of Michigan Friday, just this past Friday. 
Gretchen Whitmer. And I asked her, what are you still in need of? She said, um, she's in need of testing kits. This is in the state of Michigan. Testing kits, masks, and ventilators. Testing kits, masks, and ventilators. All this is the president is looking to open up the nation. And, you know, someone just threw out March, uh, May 1st. Susan, do you believe, Ambassador Rice, do you believe that is too soon as there is still a need? States are still looking for critical equipment to, to basically treat people or test people to see if they have it and treat people and, and try to prevent death. Yeah, April, I, I would want to defer to the scientists and the experts, but in, just given where we are, it's what, April 13th today? Uh, and there, you know, the, the, the caseload is still, you know, at a very high level. There are many parts of the country which have not peaked. Uh, and we don't have the testing. We don't still have all the personal protective equipment. We don't have all the ventilators that the states need. I think it's very unlikely that we're going to be ready to so-called reopen the country uh, on May 1st. And the worst thing that the president could possibly do is to, to let up too quickly and have this come roaring back at us. Uh, that would be a double whammy for our health, for the, for the number of fatalities, uh, for the number of infected, but also a double whammy for our economy. And so, you know, everybody obviously is eager to, to, to see uh, these significant restrictions eased. But I think everybody with any sense is also understanding of the fact that we got to get this right. Yeah. And we not, not just fast, but right. And I'm worried that the president seems to be driven by political imperatives, by his, you know, reelection campaign in the sense that, you know, he's got to get the economy going again, which we all would like to see but not at the expense of lives and our health. And I think that's where we are. You've touched on so many different issues and a lot of the issues people are, are talking about. Everyone, we're talking with former U.S. Ambassador, former National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, who is not ashamed or afraid, trust and believe, um, <laughs> to talk the truth. One thing I know about her, I've known her for over two decades, she fiercely loves this country. She will fiercely fight to the death for truth. She will fight for her family and her friends. Trust and believe that as well. And I'm thankful. Thank you, April. And I'm Thank thankful you. to count you as a friend. Um, and it's so interesting when this, first, this thing first happened, um, if you don't mind, um, when we started hearing about uh, people at CPAC getting sick, Susan Rice said, this is going to be worse than we could ever expect. You said that early on. And I watched it unfold. And um, you said it's going to hit the economy. You said it's not just going to be health, it's going to be the economy, the global economy. And you said there were already nations that had weak or weakening economies. And this is going to be a problem. Talk to me about what you see as, once again, the cost of this. Um, you have uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, saying that this is very expensive. You have the governor of Maryland. This is very expensive. Everyone is saying that every country is saying this is expensive. What do you see down the road from the perch that you sit and sat in? 
Well, first of all, April, the, the biggest cost are the over 23,000 lives that we've lost. That's in this and country by John Tuck. In this country, and mm -hmm. over half a million infected, and we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. That is way too many we have lost already. And as I think people now understand, we're losing disproportionately in our own African-American community, mm -hmm. in the Latino community, on the native uh, reservations, it's in tribal areas. It's, uh, it's really hitting America hard across the board, but particularly communities of color. And we can never make those lives back up. They're gone. We've lost souls. We've lost our frontline healthcare workers. I mean, the, I just want to stop for a second before we keep going and just say, God bless you and thank you. Yes. All of yes. these nurses and techs and doctors and um, cleaners in the hospital, everybody who is putting their lives on the line, the first responders, the firemen, the ambulance drivers, the police officers, the people working in grocery stores and the farm workers and the truckers and everybody in that food supply chain and other critical supply chains, the delivery people. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The people who are sacrificing and literally putting their lives on the line for all of us, and we all owe them an extraordinary debt of thanks. And sadly, some of them are dying. We're losing, you know, young, healthy people and elderly people and everybody in between. Uh -huh. So that's the first cost that has to, you know, stand alone. The economic costs are huge too. In this country, over almost 17 million have filed for unemployment, we've never seen those kinds of numbers, much less in three weeks' time. You know, small businesses. And just starting to get the stimulus checks. Just starting. Just starting for some people, yeah, yeah. but not for everybody. That's true. And the small businesses and the nonprofits that are you know, trying to work through the bureaucratic red tape that seems to be extraordinary to get what is due them. It's, it's just, it's a nightmare. Uh, and, you know, there's so many people who don't even, you know, haven't, weren't even working in the formal economy, who are, you know, the undocumented, the, uh, those who just aren't counted in so many ways that are, are still left to suffer. And that's here in the richest country on earth, where and we don't have health care for everybody. We don't have, as this crisis has shown, anything approaching an effective social safety net. I want you guys to tell a friend, this is about us. This is not This is not something cerebral and heady. This is about us. Things that we really need to know. Someone who was on the front line. And I want you to tell a friend, join in, because this is important. For the remainder of the time that we have, I'm looking at the questions, and I'm throwing them at Ambassador Rice. And we thank you, Ambassador Rice, for your time. You always speak the truth. Um, and, and someone uh, that we know just uh, came up, and I'm pleased to see a lot of my friends on here and people who just thank you and whatever. They like me or whatever. That's fine. But, <laughs> but, but the issue is, I know, right? So the issue Y'all like you, April. I, I, but I you're, a bad, you're a bad sister. Oh, I learned it from another bad sister. <laughs> badness keeps badness. But anyway, so look, um, I just saw something from a mutual friend of ours who said, you know, 
they had the virus and couldn't get tested. So those Johns Hopkins numbers are total underreported. Yeah. Right, right. There's so many more who are underreported. And well, I and it, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. And you and I sit in two areas. You're in another city down the road from me that we're anticipating the apex soon. This is not over. Not uh, Houston is supposed to be getting the uh, apex soon. Philly, D.C., and Baltimore. We haven't hit yet. So there's still problems, and they're talking about opening this up. And we are not just, we are not linked just uh, by the neighborhoods that we're in. We move around, and so we have to stay home. Um, and I hate the word, I hate this social distancing thing. Physical it's distance. Physical, it's physical distance. We are socially connected, but we're physically distant. That is something psychological. We need to say physical distance. Oh, anyway, moving on. So, but April, April yes, it, this affects all of us as, as human beings. And you're right that we are not counting so many of those who have been infected. And we're sadly right. not counting so many who have died. Right. The people in the nursing homes that don't get to the hospital aren't being counted. Uh. There are just so many of us that aren't being counted. So we're underplaying, not necessarily deliberately, but we're undercounting uh, how bad this is. And the other thing I want to say, we've talked about the economic impact here in the United States. Uh -huh. The economic impact in other parts of the world, particularly mm -hmm. parts of the developing world, mm. where people live in, you know, in shanty towns and in slums, and they have nothing, and they can't afford to distance. They can't afford not to go to work because they're going to starve. There are these horrific pictures that I saw today online Mm -hmm. From Kibera. Kibera is the largest slum in Nairobi. It's like a city in itself. And people were scrambling and fighting, and they were all on top of each other in a mad crush to get food delivery. Mm -hmm. you know, these are food supplies that were being distributed because they're, they're under a lockdown. They, you know, earn pennies or, you know, barely a dollar or two a day in good times. And their whole economy is collapsed and they're starving. So as rough as it is here, you know, it, we at least have food banks. We at least have some mechanisms for many people, not everybody, to get some sort of help and relief. So this is a global catastrophe and we shouldn't yeah. forget that because those people are human beings too, everywhere. They are, most definitely. And what are you, what are you hearing about the fact, and, and, this, this, and I'm just going to say this, as an African-American who is um, who's five generations removed from the last known slave in my family, sold in the auction block in Fayetteville, North Carolina, it, it irritates me to hear that uh, Africans, people want to use Africans for, as the test case uh, to, to test this. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't heard much test, about it. Okay, test the vaccine. Um, moving on. Um, I want to ask you a couple of things. Um, Four questions I have along with other people. Everyone, throw your questions out. Please, if you have questions, throw them out there. Let me know. Send, um, send this to a friend. Tell friends, because this is about you. You're not going to hear this in the briefing room. You're not going to hear this in the briefing room. Thank you, Susan, for not telling me to be quiet. And I'm fake and all that. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was a little shade. But anyway, thank you for watching, Mr. President. Um, we appreciate you. Maybe you will give me an interview because this is important as well. Um, states' rights. The president says that he has the authority because this is a national emergency. It's also a national security crisis. He says that he has the right to be able to usurp the governors and take over and open up any state. And God forbid if they don't, they're going to face election issues. So what say you? Does he have the authority to open up states above the governor's rights, above the state's rights? April, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but all the ones that I know who are say that, that nothing in the Constitution gives the president that authority. In fact, there's you know a provision in the Constitution that makes it very clear that those uh, those sorts of authorities that aren't expressly given to the president or to others um, re reside with the states. Uh -huh. So the bottom line is most experts that I know uh, make it very clear that he doesn't have that legal authority. Um, having said that, you know, the president was asked the question more than once today directly in the briefing, and he sidestepped it. Once he said, we'll get you a, a legal answer. The other time he said, well, you know, I can't imagine that they wouldn't, you know, go along with what I want. And then he implied, as you just suggested, a threat that if they don't go along with what he wants, they'll either be defeated at the ballot box or it, by implication that he'll do mean, mean things to the states that defy him. Look, the fact of the matter is this is going to come down to individual states' best judgment. There was a gathering today organized by the many of the uh, the governors of the, the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic and the governors of uh, the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California. And they all have agreed that they're going to cooperate and share information uh, and coordinate their decision making about how and when to reopen. Doesn't mean they'll all do it exactly at the same time, but they're going to be working together. And that makes a great deal of sense. You know, there may be logical arguments for some places opening sooner than others based mm -hmm. on what's happening there. Uh, you know, I personally would have much preferred to see the shutdown occur on a nationwide basis and earlier than it did. And I wish the president had come out and said that is what he not only recommended but expected to the governors to do. Because the slow ones, the recalcitrant ones, were mostly those that over whom he seems to have quite a bit of influence. So in any event, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this has to be done based on science, based on the judgment of the public health experts. This is not for Ivanka and Jared and, you know, Wilbur Ross and all those, you know. Because there's not the time. All those, all those retreads on the commission that he, you know, announced today. There's the not an economist on that, well, Larry Kudlow, but there's not a, a bipartisan economist on that panel. I don't even know what Larry Kudlow's economic credentials are besides time on TV. But in any event, uh, the reality is this is, you know, a panel of Trump loyalists and, and close economic advisors and family members that do not give confidence that public health considerations uh, and, and wise and, and dispassionate judgment will be brought to bear on what is a critical question of life and death. How and when we resume 
you know, increasingly normal economic and social activity is going to make the difference between, you know, whether we have hundreds of thousands of deaths or hopefully something much less than that, which is still already as of today way too much. So, so this is very interesting because someone posed this question. China, we, China opened um, portions of its country, but there was a reinfection that came back. Well, China has done this in stages, right? Yes. And they, you know, they lifted, for example, last week, many of the movement restrictions in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. Some in, you know, they've done some things in, in Beijing and other major cities, but what China has experienced is reinfection, well, not reinfection, that's the wrong terminology, a resumption of new infections, mainly from people. In layman's terms, a reinfection, but go ahead. Well, reinfection <laughs> is like if, it, if I got sick and then I got sick again. Well, so that's came back, the wave came back, correct? Another wave of infections right. that have largely come from Chinese nationals returning to China from the, elsewhere, from the United oh. States, from Italy, from Russia, from a lot of different places. And uh, they are coming back with the virus. Now, and that's even with China, you know, asking all these people to come back to be tested, to be quarantined, et cetera. And we've seen upticks in uh, the, you know, the virus in places like South Korea and Singapore. So we have to be very careful. We have to be vigilant. And for a damn change, we ought to learn from the experience of other countries. Mm -hmm. So with, with a national security crisis, with a national state of emergency, um, the president is now uh, touting 50 states under this. Um, it's almost, seems almost in a celebratory tone. But when you have a national security crisis, you have people who are afraid. Um, I just uh, got some uh, statements from people saying they feel helpless and thank you for the they need to hear this. Um, but there are concerns about a food shortage. Talk to me about that. Well, first of all, you know, I understand why people feel helpless and, you know, feel lost because we don't have leadership that's talking to us from the White House with truthfulness, with clarity, with sobriety, you know, with dignity, with, which all these things that we have come to expect from our leaders, Democratic or Republican, in times of crisis. We're not getting that. Uh, and instead, we're getting spin. And that's very unnerving. And then there's just the how uncomfortable and fearful we all feel about, you know, getting outside of our house. We have to go to the grocery store or the pharmacy. You feel like you're, you know, walking on, you know, through a minefield. Um, and so all these fears are real. But April, we do have uh, some, uh, a voice and, and, and a say in this. The, the first way we have a voice, and, and to the extent that any of us can, if we have the ability to stay home, if our jobs, if our circumstances allow us to do that, we absolutely have to. And we got to be, you know, serious and locked down about it. Yeah, you know, I get, you know, I've got my two kids home with me now, including one who's in college, who's come home from college, and then my other one in high school. And they just, my son wants nothing more than to be able to go and walk in the woods and take, you know, look at, he's a bird watcher and watch for birds and take photographs. And, you know, I want to be able to let him do that. But this is not the time. I told him, you know, no, <laughs> not now. You got to wait. 
And even, even though if he's by himself, you say even no. though and, and this you could argue is I'm being, you know, I'm being too extreme about it. Because up until a few weeks ago I let him do it. But you know, he's by himself, he's in the woods, you know, he's driving to where he's going. But we've got, you know, in this Washington area, as you know, the governors and the mayor saying, you know, don't do that. Stay home. And I feel like, you know, if I'm trying not to go to the grocery store, I don't see why he needs to go, you know, traipsing through the woods. So hopefully in some time he'll be able to do that. But the point is, you know, we all have to be disciplined and we all have to, to, to make, you know, do things the way we don't want to do them. And that itself makes a huge difference. Right. So we do have some agency. And the other thing, April, is, you know, we don't deserve this kind of leadership. Mm. We do Just not answer someone's question. We do not deserve Donald Trump pretending to be president. He's a tin pot dictator up there. And it's not what our country needs in terms of our security, in terms of our health, in terms of our economy. And so the other way we get to make a difference is by voting and right. voting for change in November. And you just brought up the next question. A friend of ours uh, sent me this text. I'm going to read a portion of it. I fear most that Donald Trump will argue that we need to postpone the national election because we have a national emergency. But it's a long time until November. So we'll just have to see what happens. If things start to reopen and come back this summer, fall, Trump will declare a big victory. Is it a victory? especially when thousands, tens of thousands are dead in this nation. And you are saying that he could have mitigated this and contained it earlier? No, April. When over 23,000 Americans have died, and the reality is we could have saved many of those lives had the president and the White House moved earlier and taken the steps that I just outlined at the beginning of this conversation. There's no victory in that. There's no, it's perverse. It's obscene for any president of the United States to declare victory when tens of thousands of Americans have died on his watch. Can you imagine if George Bush had declared victory after 9-11 because 3,000 Americans died as opposed to 10,000 Americans? And what version of perversity does that count as a victory? So, no, there's no victory in this. And by the way, for the 17 million Americans who've lost their jobs in the last three weeks and the millions more that will in coming weeks, how is that a victory? I mean, I, you know, I don't put past Donald Trump saying anything that he finds serves his interests. A devil's but I think advocate. the American people are smart enough not to fall for that BS. A devil's advocate. He would, he would claim victory if the numbers fall way short of the prediction of hundreds of thousands of deaths. Well, you know what? He's already trying to play this game, right? He's saying, well, if I did nothing, according to the Imperial College of London, up to 2.2 million Americans would have died. Well, in what reality would the president of the United States do nothing in the face of a global pandemic? He wants credit for not doing nothing? Give me a break. That's ridiculous. And now because, you know, he, he put out numbers. First of all, we don't know how many are going to die, right? We all hope and pray that it is as few as possible. It's already been way too many. But the reality is, like in 2009, when we had the H1N1 flu, like in 1918, which where it went on for essentially two years, 
the reality is this is going to hit us in all likelihood in waves. And so these are projections. All the projections that we have seen that, that the White House are quoting assume a longer period of social distancing than the president seems to be talking about. Assume, you know, that we have or physical distancing, that the, that the shutdown endures at least through May and is only counting deaths through August. But this is not going to end in August. It may well be back with us in the fall, in the winter, and the spring. Hmm. And the numbers are... Until a vaccine and the vast until a vaccine of people are vaccinated. Exactly. And, and by the way, year, year and a half by the way not just the majority of people in this country, but globally. Worldwide, yeah. Uh, and, so, and I was thinking just this country, but you're right, globally. Because what can happen, April is, you know, I mean, it certainly will be a good thing when we are all vaccinated in the United States. That will be a very important milestone. But that's not going to be, and people keep talking about 12 to 18 months. That's to when a vaccine exists. Then you have to manufacture it and mass, mass produce it and market it and get everybody, you know, you know, get everybody the shot. And you know, that, and, and is it one shot? Is it two shots? We don't know anything about this, right? So, is it a drink? Because everybody can't take a shot. Yeah. <laughs> not so, you know, but, but if, it, if it's not being dealt with, if the vaccine is not available swiftly in the developing world and in other parts of the world, then it will host itself in humans there and it may mutate and come back around. So we really need to recognize that, you know, pandemics don't wear flags. They don't have nationalities. They don't know borders. You can call it, as the president did yet again today, the Wuhan virus in what I consider to be a, you know, xenophobic and racist tone. But it doesn't mean that this is not our problem and that we don't have responsibility and that it's not going to come back potentially and bite us in the behind again. So what you're saying is we are in a critical two years, basically. Yeah, we're in a very difficult two years. And so whatever, you know, whatever death toll we end up with is not going to be determined by August. Wow. Okay, so in our, in our remaining time, uh, some people, I've got some questions. Um, one, someone asked, can, he be brought, can the president be brought up on impeachment charges? You can impeach a president more than once. But the issue is you have November right around the corner. The short answer is not in this case. Why not? I mean, it's a political question. I mean, we all know. We, it'll take a long time for it to happen. And it'll, it'll take a long time. Election will come sooner. Right. That's, that's where he deserves to be beaten. Beat him badly at the ballot box. You said it, I didn't. So um, I still got to go back. And for those You're the journalist. I know. You, you have integrity. I have integrity. I've got to go. Thank you. Say it again, sis. April Ryan has integrity. So the bottom line, and for those of you who are wondering why I'm not in the briefing room, I am one of those African-Americans who has underlying issues. Like the US Surgeon General, I have everything he has, asthma. I have high blood pressure and I'm pre-diabetic. And this thing has a tendency to not only attack your lungs and your lower lobe to create um, pneumonia that's harder to get at, but it exacerbates diabetes, and blood pressure. I'm a divorced mother of two kids. And I do my work where I do my work right now. That briefing room will wait. 
my Amen. life is more important, but I'm still reporting for you and giving you the stories. And that's why I'm here with Ambassador Susan Rice to give you information. Because what you see on TV right now is not right. Those briefings are not right. I'm sorry. Um, as someone who's speaking, who's been there for 23 years, four presidents of the United States I've covered. So um, you, some of you may have just seen me in three years. Oh, I've been there, washed that t-shirt and wore it again many times. So moving on, um, before we close this out, Ambassador Rice, and I met you when you were at the State Department working in African Affairs. I, actually, probably you met me when I was at the White House before I went to the State Department oh. in early Clinton administration. Yes, 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 yes. We were there during the Clinton years. We go back. We look back. like we're 17, but we go back. Um, <laughs> so, Ambassador Rice, and I'm, and I'm going to joke. Um, I give her the... I, I, I love her so much, I call her Beyonce, and we'll tell you about that later. So, that's her nickname. But anyway, Ambassador Rice, yes... <laughs> Ambassador Rice, through your, your tenure, your long term uh, in Washington, you've gotten to know a lot of people in the high levels and the unique perches that you've, you've, you've sat. You know a man named Dr. Anthony Fauci. Who is he to you? Well, Dr. Fauci, just for, you know, is a name that has become pretty common uh, on our televisions and, and radios. Truly. Dr. Fauci is, first of all, the director of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Disease at the, at the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. He has served every president since Ronald Reagan. He's been in this role since 1984. He's one of the most knowledgeable, experienced, respected scientists and public health experts that we have ever had. You know, he was instrumental in leading the scientific fight against HIV AIDS, mm -hmm. going way back. Uh, and he has fought flu pandemics before. He has fought the Ebola virus. And, and that, those are the contexts in which I work closely with him. And the Zika virus. Um, I know Dr. Fauci to be incredibly smart, completely apolitical, a scientist, scientist, and a very decent, warm human being. And I have enormous respect for him. I trust him. Uh, I think he's, you know, between a rock and a hard place every day. And God bless him because he's hanging in there. You say you only to... get three hours of sleep a night, you heard. And he's 79 years old. I know he doesn't look it, and he's fit, but my yes, God. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, But... He's a national treasure, April, and God forbid if he's not allowed to continue this fight to the end because there's nobody I trust uh, more than him, and there are many days when he's the only person I trust. It's amazing that when you listen to Andrew Cuomo and some of the governors speak, they said, listen to Dr. Fauci. They don't say the president. They say, listen to Dr. Fauci. Um, and I pray Dr. Fauci stays there, and it's, a, it's unconscionable that Dr. Fauci has to have security guards because he's telling the truth about our health. Um, and, um, and I'm just gonna leave you this. I have to lighten this a little bit. Um, DL, the great DL Hughley comedian said today, he said, if anything ever happens to Dr. Fauci, we've got Jared and Jerome. Jared Kushner had Jerome, Dr. Jerome Adams. I knew it was gonna make you laugh. <laughs> 
That was DL. So oh. <laughs> any final words, my friend? This is her book. Oh my gosh. Ambassador Susan E. Rice. Tough girl. Girl, thank you for this. It's great talking with you all. Thanks for your wonderful questions. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay home, and let's, home. Let, let's get some better leadership up in there, please. With this week's On the Record, I'm AURN White House correspondent April Ryan. Don't forget to subscribe to On the Record on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. On the Record, a product of American Urban Radio Networks.